Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by their good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. He is the chairman emeritus of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our conversation about gun control and the Second Amendment. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is September the 20th, and on this day in 1963, an optimistic and upbeat President John F. Kennedy suggested that the Soviet Union and the United States cooperate on a mission to mount an expedition to the moon. The proposal caught both Soviets and Americans, many Americans, off guard. In 1961, shortly after his election as president, John F. Kennedy announced he was determined to win the space race with the Soviets. Since 1957, when the Soviet Union sent a small satellite, Sputnik, into orbit around the Earth, Russian and American scientists had been competing to see who could make the next breakthrough in space travel. Outer space became another frontier in the Cold War. Kennedy upped the ante in 1961 when he announced the United States would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Much of that has changed by 1963, however. Relations with the Soviet Union had improved measurably. The Cuban Missile Crisis of October 62 had been settled peacefully. A hotline had been established between Washington and Moscow to help avert conflict and misunderstandings. A treaty banning the open-air testing of nuclear weapons had been signed in 1963. On the other hand, U.S. fascination with the space program was waning. Opponents of the program cited the high cost of the proposed trip to the moon, estimated at more than $20 billion. In the midst of all this, Kennedy, in a speech to the United Nations, proposed the Soviet Union and the United States cooperate in mounting a mission to the moon. Why, he asked the audience. Therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Uh, Kennedy noted, the clouds have lifted a little and the terms of the U.S.-Soviet relations and declared the Soviet Union and the United States together with their allies can achieve further agreements, agreements which spring from our mutual interest in avoiding mutual destruction. Soviet uh, Minister Andriy Gromyko uh, applauded Kennedy's speech and called it a good sign but refused to comment on the proposal for a joint trip to the moon. In Washington, there was a good bit of surprise and some skepticism about Kennedy's proposal. The space race had been one of the most focal points of the Kennedy administration when he came to office, and the idea that America would cooperate with the Soviets in sending a man to the moon seemed unbelievable. Other commentators saw the economics, not politics, behind the proposal. When the uh, soaring price tag of the lunar mission, perhaps a joint effort with the Soviets, was the only way to save the costly program. Whatever might have been Kennedy's idea is unknown, but just two months later, of course, sadly, he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. His successor, Lyndon Baines Johnson, had announced the idea of cooperating with the Soviets, but pushed ahead with a lunar, a lunar program. In 1969, the United States landed a man on the moon, thus winning a significant victory in the space race. <clears throat> so moving from uh, Camelot to reality here in the United States. House Republicans are set to hold the first impeachment inquiry hearing against President Joe Biden next week as Congress investigates allegations of abuse of uh, power and corruption. 
Lawmakers are expected to review existing evidence and explain the inquiry's status as scheduled on September the 28th hearing. The hearing will focus on constitutional and legal questions surrounding the president's involvement in corruption and abuse of uh, public office, said uh, House Spokesman uh, Oversight Committee spokesperson. Oversight Chairman James Comer, uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, and Ways and Means Committee uh, Chairman Jason Smith are leading the investigation as Biden has been accused of being involved in his son's foreign business deals. For example, while much of the attention surrounding Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings are focused on lucrative relationships in Ukraine and China, the president's son also earned significant money from a lesser-known contact in Romania. Then-Vice President Joe Biden was pushing anti-corruption reforms. Isn't that interesting? He's always pushing anti-corruption reforms in Romania while his son worked on his uh, U.S. government contracts contacts on behalf of his Romanian client, just as he pocketed money from Ukrainian client when his father pushed anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine. And Hunter Biden never uh, disclosed his work as a lobbyist under the Foreign Agents Registration Act in Romania or Ukraine, despite meeting with U.S. officials to advocate both for his Romanian client and for Burisma. The Romanian real estate tycoon found himself in a little bit of trouble and engaged Hunter in this, uh, the prospect. He was facing a prospect of going to jail. Bank records show that Hunter and his business associates received at least three million buckaroos uh, from this individual between November f- 2015 and May of 2017. So even more evidence, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come out of this uh, impeachment inquiry. Well, as you probably know and heard, but this is a sad deal, sad uh, commentary. U.S. national debt has surpassed $33 trillion for the first time as lawmakers scramble to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the month. The Treasury Department noted that the debt reached $33.04 trillion on Monday, meaning it has spiked by $1.58 trillion since the debt ceiling was lifted in early June. After years of extreme spending, the country reached its debt ceiling of $31.4 trillion in January, and months later, in May, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to suspend the cap until January of 2025. But in spite of our increase in the cap, there's still got to be the matter of a budget, and a scheduled procedural vote aimed at advancing the stopgap spending bill crafted by negotiators from the House Freedom Caucus and Main Street Caucus was withdrawn from the agenda on Tuesday. This development comes as the September 30th deadline for maintaining government funding approaches rapidly. The ongoing dispute over how to avert the government shutdown has caused divisions within the House GOP majority, resulting in the emergence of conflicting proposals amid a surge of conservative opposition. Our representative, Byron Donalds, a Republican here from Collier County, who is one of the primary negotiators for the current House Republican stopgap spending bill uh, expressed strong criticism of moderate members who are beginning to consider collaboration with Democrats as a means to prevent the government shutdown. <clears throat> Excuse me, please. Well, my opinion, I think we should just go ahead and let the government uh, shut down and just declare that we're not going to open up the government until we have resolved the issue with not only the House but the Senate and the president's signature on the bill. So uh, let's just put this behind us, all this hanging and ringing about closing the government. Nothing really bad happens as a result of that. 
and uh, it, there would be a sense of urgency to open the government uh, and get the bill not only uh, approved by the House and the Senate, but also by the president. And by the way, hats off to House Budget Chair Jody Arrington for proving all the critics wrong and laying out his gutsy plan for a balanced budget in 10 years. And he does it without a one penny of tax increase and even makes the Trump tax cuts permanent. It's not that hard. Cuts uh, useless and wasteless spending. Gets rid of the Green New Deal $300 billion slush fund. Constrain runaway Medicare and Medicaid spending. Work requirements for all welfare programs. Eliminate hundreds of redundant low-priority programs. Grow the economy at 3% to get more revenues. Now the House Republicans have to band together, pass this bill, and get the ball into the Senate. This is uh, your move, Chuck Schumer. You should uh, uh, support this bill. It'd be a great way to move forward. Anyhow, thank you to Jody Arrington for coming up with this balanced budget in 10 years. It's a great idea. Well, you and General Assembly yesterday, President Biden spoke before world leaders and emphasized the importance of standing with Ukraine. As he put it, we must stand up to this naked aggression today to deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky warned that the Russia's aggression won't stop at Ukraine's borders and could spread elsewhere. Countries in South America, Asia, and Africa are reportedly criticizing the West for putting all of their attention on Ukraine, an Eastern uh, European country, and ignoring all their massive crises. And they've got a point, and uh, I think the, the claim that somehow there's going to be Russian aggression around the world uh, is probably a little exaggerated for sure. Well, a missile strike on eastern Ukraine on September the 6th killed at least 15 civilians and injured 30 others. The missile struck market, causing extensive damage to windows and walls, and President Zelensky quickly blamed Russian terrorists for the attack. But evidence collected and analyzed by the New York Times suggested the strike was actually caused by an errant Ukrainian air defense missile fired by a launch system. This missile appears to have veered off course, with Ukrainian authorities now claiming they're investigating the incident. Witness accounts and evidence, including missile fragments, satellite imagery, and social media posts, indicate the missile that hit the market came from Ukrainian-held territory, not from behind Russian lines. Security camera footage shows four pedestrians turning their heads toward the incoming missile, facing the camera in the direction of Ukrainian-held territory. The missile uh, reflection is also visible as it passes over the two parked cars, confirming its northwestern trajectory. The timing of the two uh, surface-to-air missile launches just minutes before the strike coincides with the time frame for the missile that hit the market. The launches were witnessed by residents and recorded by members of the New York Times team. At the time, global media outlet includes the Times itself blindly reiterated Zelensky's false claims. We've got to be more careful in our reporting, boys and girls. We need to make sure that we get the truth. And uh, again, supporting Zelensky just because he says it was a Russian missile uh, doesn't make it the case. And Zelensky, of course, is uh, now coming in trying to ask for more money. Well, a potential U.S. government shutdown may impede the delivery of vital weaponry to Ukraine and the training of its military personnel. Uh, as of the deadline for Congress to secure funding, of course, is September the 30th, and then that there's a risk of a government shutdown. In the event of a shutdown, the Defense Department would be compelled to initiate extensive furloughs and suspend non-essential operations 
uh, possibly causing interruptions in the delivery of defense articles, services, and military education and training for Ukraine. That according to a Pentagon spokesperson. So there's a lot on the line for Zelensky about what happens here uh, locally. <clears throat> well, a Ferromex train out of Mexico and heading towards the U.S. southern border was packed with immigrants who could be heard cheering while hanging off the sides of the cars. And I'm talking about car after car after car of immigrants. The train was captured on a video on Sunday despite the U.S. sending a stern message to migrants, do not come. Border Patrol along the southern border has been facing overwhelming numbers of illegal crossings. In fact, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection has temporarily suspended operations at the port of entry near El Paso so the uh, personnel could assist in processing non-citizens who have arrived at the border, the agency said. So this is just amazing that uh, this continues here after this well, Mayorkas has lied. The president has lied. Nobody's paying attention to the problem. Uh, we need to close the border. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. 
or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's the chairman emeritus of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, individual liberty, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. A terrific, uh, very vital website. I hope you check it out, Cato.org. So, Bob, last year, we uh, last week, we initiated our conversation about the Second Amendment and gun control, which is a topic in the news these days. And uh, we discussed a little bit about the Heller case. So what do other legal scholars say about the Supreme Court's view of the Second Amendment? Well, interesting, a lot, a lot of uh, legal scholars, including some prominent liberals, acknowledge now that the Second <clears throat> Amendment secures an individual right even if it's not connected to militia service. Uh, Harvard's Alan Dershowitz says he hates guns, and he he would like to see the Second Amendment repealed. Mm -hmm. But he condemns, this is his quote, foolish liberals who are trying to read the Second Amendment out of the Constitution by claiming it's not an individual right. And another uh, icon liberal uh, at Harvard, Lawrence Tribe, um, acknowledges that there's an individual right to keep it bare arms, even though it's limited by reasonable regulation uh, in the interest of public safety. So I think in that respect, Tribe and Dershowitz and others agree with uh, gun rights advocates on, on two really basic issues. First, the Second Amendment confirms an individual right, not just a collective right. And second, uh, the right isn't absolute. It's subject to regulation, and to the extent that there's disagreement, it hinges on what constitutes uh, permissible regulation. Where do you draw the line? So that makes sense. So the Heller case addressed the D.C.'s gun ban, and literally, if you had a gun, you had to have it disassembled in your home, according to prior to the Heller case. So what about the gun laws outside of D.C.? Yeah, Washington, D.C. was not the whole story. And so for the rest of the <clears throat> picture, we had to wait a couple of years for a 2010 follow-up case, which was called McDonald versus Chicago. And it determined that the Second Amendment applies not only to federal jurisdictions like D.C. and Guam, Samoa, Puerto Rico, etc., but it also applies, as you might expect, to the states and to the localities. So, you know, D.C. is not a state. It's a federal enclave. Congress exercises legislative power there. And that's one reason we filed the Heller case in D.C., because we didn't want to deal with whether or not the Second Amendment was applicable to the individual states. We just wanted a four-square declaration of what it is that the Second Amendment meant. Until the 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War, the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government, not to states. So, you know, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about states making laws. Hmm. 
Of course, we, we found that over 70 years that the states can be just as tyrannical as the, uh, as the feds, slavery being the obvious uh, case in point. So after the Civil War, we passed these three post-war amendments, including the 14th, which prevents the states from violating due process, equal protection, privileges, or immunities. And the 14th Amendment has been used to apply the technical term is incorporate the Bill of Rights so that it applies to the states. It didn't occur in one fell swoop. It was, it was accomplished provision by provision, free speech, religion, protection against unreasonable searches, etc. But remarkably, until this 2010 McDonald case, the court had never decided whether the Second Amendment uh, would be incorporated to apply to the states. And that's what McDonald accomplished. And now the Second Amendment, like virtually all the Bill of Rights, applies to all of the states, not just to federal enclaves uh, such as D.C. Well, thank you for the explanation, Bob. And by the way, for our listeners' benefit, uh, uh, Bob uh, Levy actually uh, argued the case in front of the Supreme Court. I mean, he represented Heller in this case and won. So he's probably the only case you've, you've argued, Bob, and actually won <laughs> the only case in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I may be, I may be the only lawyer you've uh, spoken to that has a... A hundred percent of the cases that I've ever argued have been Supreme Court victories. <laughs> of course, I've only I've only only been involved in one case, but so still a hundred percent. How did the uh, court decide whether the Second Amendment rights would be incorporated against the states? The criterion for incorporation is whether the right is deemed to be fundamental. And fundamental—that's a term of art. It means that the right is deeply rooted in our nation's histories and tradition and culture, mm-hmm. or implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So in both the Heller case and the McDonald case, the Supreme Court recognizes the Second Amendment is a fundamental right, and that means that Americans enjoy a presumption of individual liberty, and government, if it wants to intrude upon that liberty, bears a heavy burden to justify any gun control regulations, the state or the federal regulators would have to show three things. First, that public safety requires a proposed regulation. Second, that the regulations are going to work. And third, that there's no way to reach the same result uh, without compromising Second Amendment rights. So it's no longer, after Heller and McDonald, it's no longer up to me to show that I need a gun. It's up to government to demonstrate it has a need to limit my access to a gun. Now, that framework changed somewhat last year, 2022, as a result of the Bruin case, and we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in our discussion. So interesting. So what's the current status of gun rights? What do we stand after the Heller-McDonald cases? From the beginning, the battle was a three-step process. Step one, determining the meaning of the Second Amendment, and that was accomplished in Heller. Step two, determine where the Second Amendment applies, whether it's just federal enclaves or the states, and that was completed in McDonnell. Uh, Step three is to flesh out the scope of these rights, that is, what restrictions are still going to be permitted, and that's what we're involved in right now. Uh, Nobody believes that gun rights are absolute. So clearly, the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee the right of an 11-year-old to carry a machine gun in front of the White House when the president is taking a stroll on the lawn. 
So some weapons and some people and some circumstances are going to be subject to regulation. Mm-hmm. That's the same framework we have for other rights. Right. So the First Amendment says, you know, no law abridging the freedom of speech. But we have a lot of laws <laughs> that prevent, for example, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater and inciting to riot, lying in commercial ads, defamation, etc. So neither the right to free speech nor the right to bear arms is absolute. They can be regulated, but they're both constitutionally guaranteed, and that means government has the burden. So interesting. So did Justice Scalia provide any guidance as to what regulations the Second Amendment allows? He concluded that the Second Amendment secured this individual right to bear arms in the home for lawful purposes, including self-defense. But he explicitly stated that Heller did not, and again, this is a quote, cast doubts on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons, by the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools or laws imposing conditions and qualifications, and this would be such as background checks, on the commercial sale of firearms. And he also noted that there was historical support for prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. So Florida, for example, could have adopted any of those restrictions without violating the Second Amendment as interpreted uh, as interpreted in Heller. But as you know, however, states can always grant more gun owners' rights than the federal government, and that's what Florida has chosen to do. So our state imposes fewer restrictions than allowed uh, by the Heller case. By contrast, there are some other states that regulate or even ban, for example, things like assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And those regulations, for the most part, have not been overturned uh, by the courts. This is such a fascinating discussion, Bob. I really appreciate your commentary on this, Bob. Bob Levy, again, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute, C-A-T-O dot org. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. You as well. Thank you, Bob. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Make it a convenient and stress-free experience by calling the dynamic and trustworthy husband and wife team of Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. Find out about their unique and complimentary post-closing concierge services not offered by other area agents. Matt and Megan Chionis give you the competitive advantage to command a premium price for your property. They personally attend all showings, create a marketing strategy for your property, and offer that complimentary concierge service to your potential buyer. This hands-on approach has helped them set several sales records in Pelican Bay and many at near-record prices. Megan and Matt Chionis understand that as an affluent buyer-seller, your needs and desires are unique. You deserve this level of service. Megan and Matt Chionis are passionate about the Naples lifestyle and they want you to enjoy it too. Call Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 239-269-5310. That's 239-269-5310. 
you have questions about your retirement, Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratospell Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I want to welcome aboard uh, new advertisers, Matt and Megan Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home, give them a call. The number is 269-5310. That's 269-5310. I know you'll be glad you did. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. We typically start our conversations on Wednesday morning with some good news. Do you have some good news for us? Well, I've got some good news, actually really good news stories uh, this morning. But let me start out with the quote of the day, and it comes from uh, an unusual source, Idi Amin Dada, Uh a former uh, dictator of Uganda. Uh, He probably summarized all dictatorships in one simple sentence. He said, you have freedom of speech, but freedom after speech that I cannot guarantee. Now, I could care less about Uganda as, uh, as it pertains to dictatorships at this point. But if we look at America, that's exactly what is happening. Yeah, you can say things, but then what happens to you after that in terms of punishment, often initiated by the government, that is the problem, Bob. So I think that uh, uh, Idi Amin's comment, I think, can be applied to America, Bob. A word to the wise from Idi Amin. <laughs> Watch yeah, out what you say, because there could that, be consequences. Yes, that's true. So interesting. Okay, so uh, on to uh, good news. Yeah, there's a real good news story. I think it's a good news story for Florida particularly. But uh, yesterday, uh, Byron Donalds, Representative Byron Donalds, uh, has indicated that he probably will run, I'm guessing probably is the right word, uh, for governor of Florida. That is certainly outstanding news uh, for our state of Florida. I, I think it is a wonderful career move for uh, for Mr. Donalds, I, I think he uh, would gain by that administra- uh, added administrative experience. And I think the governor's role is typically one of the major platforms to move into national candidacy. So what I'm seeing here is uh, a good move for the state of Florida, one for Byron Donalds uh, as a political candidate, and certainly one for the future of America, as I think Byron Donalds will will gain an increasingly uh, more significant uh, role in the national political arena. I hope that DeSantis supports uh, uh, Donalds if he chooses to run for the governor's chair. You know, I, I guess uh, th- that's an interesting point, because who will DeSantis choose? I mean, I, I think that my, Matt Getz has also thrown his name into the, uh, into the uh, ring as well. So, uh, or his hat into the ring. So, uh, you know, I definitely think Byron is a terrific, he would make a great governor here in the state of the floor. I totally agree with you. He's uh, on top of the Constitution. He understands what our limitations should be. He operates within a framework of uh, protecting our rights. I think Byron would be a fantastic governor. I hope he decides to run. 
I, I hope so, too. Now, both of us have been so close to Byron for, uh, for almost a decade, maybe more, uh, that sometimes you can lose track of greatness because of that closeness. But with Byron Donalds, no, as, as, as I've learned more about Byron Donalds, uh, the greatness of this man has, has increased. It has not been diminished at all, Bob. I totally agree with that. Uh, and, uh, again, he's been criticized because he proposed uh, uh, some sort of a, a continuing resolution for keeping the government open. Uh, I think his alternative is basically saying, look, I, I don't want to see uh, moderate Republicans go to the Democrats to work out some sort of a deal. So, you know, and I also just acknowledge any time that you're willing to have uh, dialogue with the opposition, to me, that's an improvement over just taking a stand and refusing to talk. Yeah, they, these are serious issues with uh, many unintended uh, consequences that can develop. So uh, certainly sometimes positions are taken not for, the, for what seems to be the primary issue, but for the unintended consequences that may develop. So, uh, yeah, I think we have to be careful about how we condemn any politician uh, as he gets into roles of, for example, rejecting a, a total bill because there was a significant addendum to that bill that is totally unacceptable. And that person, of course, will be attacked for uh, attacking the primary bill, which has not happened. So I think we always have to be careful in the political arena when we're looking at that. Uh, another good news story, and this is something that uh, I historically have not been a big supporter of the international uh, Islamic community. I think you probably recognize that. Uh, I haven't been totally negative on it, but I have not supported it. But uh, in Hamtramck, uh, Michigan, uh, the town council, which is entirely Muslim, recently voted to remove all the pride flags from public property. Uh, and this is a, to me, it's a story that has significance. Uh, you'll find many Christian denominations that are not even considering moving uh, in those directions. And yet here you have the very socially conservative Islamic community that I think in this particular circumstance is supporting the general position held by the majority of Americans, Bob. Ah, such an interesting comment. It just begs so many points of discussion around uh, the uh, political jihad and all those issues, and I, I wish we could ha had time for that today. But nevertheless, I appreciate that point of view. Uh, and and uh, any other good news, Andy? Well, one more good news story, and it's in the negative form, but the, uh, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Antonio Guterres, <laughs> has indicated that the, social, so the sustainable development goals are in reverse, that only 15% of the targets of these goals are being met, and many of them are being reversed. Uh, as he offers his comments. So to me, this is good news. Uh, the, the sustainable development goals, particularly around the issues of climate change, for example, he is indicating are not happening as a result of, of, of United Nations actions, Bob. To me, that's a good news story. It is indeed, Andy. We need to take a little break. Can you stick around? I have no place better to be. Bob. All right. Thank you, Andy. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Two-thirds of parents prefer educational options for their children with 40% strongly preferring options for their child's education. 
School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior quality schools of choice. Optima's goal was the successful launch of Hillsdale College Varney Charter School, Initiative Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence across the state of Florida, serving kindergarten through the 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through a content-rich classical education and the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. In a terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy has already opened here in Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website Optima.Foundation. Help children in Florida optimize their educational opportunities. Visit www.Optima.Foundation. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now I'll play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. And I hope you'll find out more and get some tickets. You can visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org, golfshoreplayhouse.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. Hey, I understand that uh, you picked up a copy of uh, Mark Levin's new book, Democrat Party Hates America. How- well, it just came out yesterday. I, I uh, had it uh, as soon as it was available. Uh, I'm not through reading it. I'm through the first three chapters. Uh, as with most of Mark Levin's book, it's, it's outstanding. Uh, this is not just a Me Too book. Uh, Mark Levin's detail, his his confirming historical information uh, laid against current circumstances is is really uh, really dramatic. Uh, I think it's a book that, if it became the the playbook for the Republican Party, uh, could turn America around. Now, I'm not optimistic ab- about that happening, but his basic thesis, his basic thesis, and I'll get back to more of this later. But he says the Democrat Party is a monopoly party that seeks total control of the government. Uh, what he says Barack Obama called a fundamental transformation. Uh, they operate a vast administrative state that issues edicts, dictates regulations, rules, fines, and penalties that serve only one thing, Bob, the ideological purposes of the Democrat Party. Now, he goes back to as far as uh, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, one of the most uh, horrible men that's ever been in the Oval Office, followed by another very destructive president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he fully dictates 
both their anti-Semitism and their rejection of the Constitution as a binding document on the presidency. So, I mean, he expands on this rather dramatically. Now, I have more to say about this, but uh, at this point in my reading, the first three chapters of an eight-chapter book, it, it is outstanding. It needs to be read by anyone who's concerned with truly understanding the Democrat Party in America, Bob. Yeah. So does the title say it all, the Democrat Party Hates America? Well, I think he did that uh, provocatively, and I think to draw, uh, to draw in the interest of people, I think that was done with intent. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think he documents that uh, pretty, uh, pretty thoroughly. Uh, whether that hate is the right word or not, I, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word. But again, it's a provocative word that was chosen, I think, carefully by Mark Levin. It is an excellent read, uh, and I'm sure the rest of the book will prove to be as outstanding as the first three chapters. Bob. Well, I'll look forward to, uh, to reading it myself. I mean, I definitely think the Democrat Party is on a march towards uh, Marxism and uh, negating the Constitution, unfortunately. Let me just spend a little more time with it. Uh, one of the things that Mark um, does, he, he talks about some of the work done by the, uh, the Freedom House, eh, which is a, a nonpartisan NGO uh, that historically is focused on authoritarian governments, uh, mostly uh, China and Russia, at least recently. And what, what Mark Levin shows is how all of their comments on the defining elements of a dictatorship uh, that they're focused on for Russia and China are absolutely applicable to the current state of America. And he expands on each and every point from the Freedom House's position uh, to demonstrate uh, how America is now certainly on a par uh, dictatorially with China and with Russia, Bob. Yeah, so interesting. Look forward to read the book. So uh, uh, I know you've got some strong and so far unexpressed opinions about electric vehicles, we were unable to conclude that in last week's discussion. I did want I do want to get to that. I have two things of interest that I think just are stories of interest. Uh, one is the recent crash of an F thirty five in South Carolina. Yep. Uh, this apparently there was a mis <clears throat> mishap in midair. Uh, the pilot ejected. The plane continued on automatic pilot. Uh, they couldn't find it. They asked for civilian help to uh, look around for it and, and find the F-35. Now, the questions that generates is, was this a poorly trained pilot, a poorly tra a designed plane, or just something other than that? Certainly, uh, to abandon a plane over a population of a half a million people in Charleston and its, its surrounding areas, uh, just as a dramatic circumstance. So I'm very interested to hear on how this will ultimately be defined. That is if the, if the Marines are transparent about the cause. The other story of, of interest uh, at this point, Bob, is the, uh, is the uh, recent comments yesterday, I would, I would presume, from Ted Cruz, where he indicated that as a projection, a strong possibility that he sees at the Democratic convention uh, that the, the candidate, as he puts it, that will parachute in will be Michelle Obama. Now, he's not absolutely predicting that, but he's saying it makes sense. He says the party has to abandon Kamala Harris, and yet they have to do so in a manner that would not offend African-American women. So Michelle Obama with very high positives, 
very low negatives by polling uh, would be the candidate that would dismiss the problem of eliminating Kamala Harris while offering a very popular uh, former first lady for the for the candidacy. So what he says makes sense. And again, because things make sense, don't mean they're going to happen. And Ted Cruz indicates that, Bob, certainly. Uh, but I think we're looking at something is going to churn in the Democrat Party. And his position is it might be Michelle Obama. That's so interesting. I'll just ask the very practical question. Who else do they have? Well, that is the practical question. I think certainly that is a fair question. Now, of course, it, this all this begs the issue of whether Michelle Obama, living a life of dramatic self-indulgence, would want to invest four years of her life or more, God, God forbid, uh, in the presidency uh, is is in doubt. But presuming that's not uh, not an issue, uh, I think this she would be a strong candidate, unfortunately, uh, and I think that she is the only choice that seems to be readily available, and um, I think would be strong for the Democrats. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention one other, and uh, I'm very fond of uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think he's a, a terrific candidate for the Democrat Party for presidency. He's said some things recently that are just. Awful. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, just proving that, uh, you know, he's for a large government in many ways. But I think he's an ethical man. He's a good man. He's a bright man. I think his book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, is just terrific. So I think he's a candidate. But obviously, the Democrat Party has wants nothing to do with him. Nothing, nothing at all. I mean, uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy has certainly positioned himself more towards the uh, towards the right than towards the left in many, at least many of his of his public positions. I think your point is well taken. If if the Democrats love America, they might choose someone like like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, but again, the Mark Levin's point is they care nothing about America. They only care about the Democrat Party. So the chances of uh, RFK Jr. are slim to none, whereas Michelle Obama seems to be the go-to uh, candidate uh, in the absence of a, of a Joe Biden. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the likely scenario, Bob. So interesting. So what about uh, EVs? What about electric vehicles? Uh, EVs, I think that's... Here's my problem. Uh, my problem is we have clearly identified the rash of issues surrounding EVs in this country. Uh, we know that the, uh, to double the charging capacity of our, uh, of our electric grid system would be nigh on impossible, which is needed for these vehicles. Their price uh, to the average consumer would, al would almost, if not, price them out of that market. We know they catch fire, uh, not absolutely every one of them certainly but predictably enough we know these fires are impossible to put out we know in california they're trying to move towards uh, uh the uh, electrification ev for large trucks and make them driverless i can't think of a more scary scenario than eighty thousand pound trucks electric trucks that are not that are not driven by human beings. If one of those things would ever catch fire uh, on, a, on a public highway, it would probably close down that highway for days, if not for weeks. Now, to their credit, the California legislature is trying soundly to defeat the initiative of, of, uh, of allowing these large trucks to be electrified and go driverless. But on the other hand, I think no matter what we bring up about the EVs, the government in its 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 commitment to these EVs, and by the way, uh, 
the dealers are turning down new shipments of EVs because no one is buying them. Right. Uh, the uh, Hertz and Avis can't even rent the EVs because the customers do not want to use an EV because of the uh, of the confusions in, in operating one. So here we have this, but with all of this, Bob, it could still happen. The government could just plunge headlong into this uh, using a climate emergency or just their general position on climate change uh, to it to follow through on this and bring this this hell uh, to the American consumer, Bob. Well, and the interesting thing is right now with the threat of the uh, UAW strike and what's going on right now, it really puts... Uh, uh, Elon Musk in an extremely competitive position. So I think the real benefactor of what's happening right now is Elon Musk and electric vehicles. I mean, I think uh, if if the the union is successful, they're going to price cars right out of uh, you know in a way that it's going to make very difficult for for people to buy them. So uh, this is a very interesting time. Uh, yeah, I think we're in a, in a uh, period of creative destruction when it comes to the auto industry. Well, my I, I, destruction is probably uh, accurate, creative. I, I have to say it's creative, but it may not be beneficial, creative destruction. Good so that we have to see how it unfolds. Uh, certainly the, the car is so intrinsic to the American culture uh, with the suburban communities, the rural communities. Uh, they're needing access to the uh, municipal centers, uh, and the car is the primary source of interaction. Uh, this is just a, a horrible thing that would dramatically, dramatically totally alter uh, the lifestyle of most Americans, Bob. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think this this contract with the UAW, which uh, may uh, create 40 uh, percent uh, over a three-year period in terms of wage increases, uh, may jack up the price of uh, of uh, these vehicles, both EV and and um, uh, and the internal combustion. But the internal combustion are much more labor intensive. So I think I think your point was that the the ICE vehicles uh, are the ones that would be the, the hardest hit by these things. Let, let me mention we have to watch our acronyms. I was reading the story of Jennifer Granholm's uh, trying to uh, espouse the use of EVs by going on a trip in the southeastern part of the United States using electric vehicles. Now, if you've read about that trip, it was a horror story right from the beginning. <laughs> Getting charged, uh, there was a police interaction uh, when the vehicles associated with her tried to block a charging station, and a family with children was unable to get to what they called the police. So it was just incredible that this 171-mile trip created such absolute havoc. And the, the acronym I want to talk about is the story I first read said that Granholm was accompanied by ICE vehicles, I-C-E. And I'm thinking, why is the Immigration uh, Bureau involved with this trip? And, of course, the I-C-E stands, in this case, for Internal Combustion Engine. So we have to be careful with our, <laughs> with our acronyms, Bob. And you got to take another break. Can you stick around? I'll, I'll be here. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help with the exclusive confident retirement approach 
You'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. They help prepare elected officials uh, to have winning strategies going into the legislature. And you can find out more by visiting the website, vfga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be here, Bob. So, Andy, the, uh, uh, right now we've got drug pricing that's being a topic not only uh, in uh, the national legislature but also in, uh, in Florida here. I wanted to get your comments. Well, I mean, it sounds real good that the, right now the Biden administration uh, has uh, released a list of the, uh, the <clears throat> 10 drugs that, is gonna be, that are going to be on the, the price uh, chopping block through Medicare, uh, driving the prices down. Uh, that'll hit the, the consumer's wallet in a positive way uh, by 2026, and it sounds good. Uh, but one of the problems with that is that it's going to dramatically reduce the profit levels uh, that are made by uh, by the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I'll mention that back in the early part of my career, I was in that industry. I, I worked for the chemical industry of the Basel, a Swiss-based company. So I have a general sympathy towards the, uh, towards the industry, but I think it's well-founded. What's going to happen if the, uh, if the, the profit margins are, are, are reduced because of a mandated uh, decrease in pricing, uh, the the research and development to produce the miracle drugs, and I call them miracle drugs because these drugs over the uh, over the years have saved millions and millions of lives, and and really dramatically uh, aided the the human community in terms of their impact. But it costs. Uh, two to three billion dollars, Bob, for the clinical trials, plus another billion in FDA administrative process. So anywhere from three to four billion dollars. And this goes along with a 12-year time lag uh, to get the miracle drug to the public. Uh, so here will, and by the way, it may not even be successful when it reaches the market. So here we have, sure, a, a reduction in the, in, the, in the expense of the average American. 
But in the long run, and I'm not talking about 50 years, I'm talking about in the next 10 years, uh, the investment of the, dr- the pharmaceutical industry in new drugs because of the dramatic expense uh, in bringing them to market is going to be curtailed. And the, the, the victims will be the, uh, the, the customer, those that would be benefiting from these drugs that might be produced but now may not be produced, Bob. Such an interesting point. I will add, however, I have concerns about the cost that are imposed on drug manufacturers and developers by the FDA as well as these uh, alphabet agencies. Uh, You know, I have friends that are actually in the pharmaceutical business that take their trials to other countries because they can reduce the cost by as much as 75%. So uh, there's a lot of fat building in the entire process that needs to be inspected and kind of torn apart and put back together. Yeah, that wasn't a however, however statement. I mean, I think your statement supports what I was saying. So I, I, I was waiting for some some rebuttal. But uh, what you offered is certainly true. Uh, that the 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 inefficiency of our of our whole uh, federal bureaucracy as it pertains to this uh, 2.3 billion uh, for the uh, for the clinical trials, another billion for the administrative process of yeah. the FDA, just outrageous in terms of their implication. So, yeah, I think something has to be done, uh, but I'll tell you, if it's done in total isolation, just merely reducing the price of these 10 listed drugs from the Biden administration is certainly not an answer. I think what you suggested, Bob, is a partial response to this. Uh, Try to keep down the cost uh, for the pharmaceutical uh, industry's ability to bring a drug to market. Absolutely. Well, and and of course, this is not, this is just 10 drugs to start. Now, they they have a list of them that are supposed to be continuing on uh, into the future for years uh, going forward. Uh, The problem, of course, is this is just another attempt to buy votes at the expense of the unintended consequences can, as you're pointing out, can be just extreme. And I'm very afraid the American public will support this because the I have not heard a good word about the pharmaceutical industry, maybe ever. Uh, it's an industry that is attacked indiscriminately. It's it's accused of every uh, every. Uh, area of, of malfeasance, uh, and yet this is an industry that has been dramatically purposeful uh, in terms of improving the quality of life. So um, I'm, I'm not optimistic uh, that the public will, in fact, recognize the problem sufficiently enough to prevent it from becoming what I suggested it might be. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make this comment. I think the pharmaceutical industry has taken a hard left turn uh, recently with regard to uh, their association with the FDA, the uh, CDC, and uh, all the things that are going on right now with regard to, you know, pushing vaccines. I think there's some uh, almost... They do for the same reason I get vaccinated at my college because I have to. And I think the pharmaceutical industry is in that same uh, bad position where uh, pushing back against the uh, the uh, the uh, the administrative state in the in the medical area is not going to be a winning hand for them. Bob. No, it certainly isn't. Andy, always we have more to talk about than we've got time. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Next week we'll lead off with Seth Rich. I think it's an important story. I do too. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did and learned a lot. Uh, always appreciate your listening into the show. So thank you for your support. And I hope you'll, uh, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends because that's one of the ways we support our advertisers and we can't do the show without them. Uh, Tomorrow we've got some great guests. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.